Oh yeah, what's up everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Artist of Data Science Happy Hour. Super excited to have all of you guys here. Man, I can't believe it is Friday already. Can't believe it's March already. It is Friday, March 5th, 2021. I don't know how the first two months of 2021 went by so quickly, but they have, and I'm excited to have all of you guys here once again. Uh, it's definitely the highlight of my week to see all of you guys here. So thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here, guys. Um, hopefully you got a chance to check out the episode that I dropped today with Dr. Sedna Bukhira. She is a gelotologist. I did not know what a gelotologist was until I had to look it up. But apparently what a gelotologist does is they study laughter and humor. So we had a really interesting conversation about all the things that we can learn from stand-up comedians because a huge part of the research that she does involves her literally going to comedy shows and studying the way comedians tell joke. Um, so there's a ton of to to learn from uh from her and from her research on comedians uh super excited to have all you guys here i see a bunch of old friends i see my good friend kuyen right there front and center kuyen good to finally see you in one of these if you guys haven't listened to the interview that i did with kuyen uh please do um she is wise well beyond her years definitely a future influencer in this space so check out that interview shout out to christian christian's in the house i see Vin, I see Greg, David Knickerbocker, Tom, Ashen, Eric, uh, Albert Bellamy driving. What's up, Albert? It looks like a beautiful sunny day where you're at. Um, bunch of friends in the chat as well. We got Makiko. We got um, Carlos is here. Been a while, man. Good to see you again, Carlos. Uh, right on, man. Well, super, super happy to have all you guys here, man. How's everybody been? Am I late, bro? No, it just I started. Was... It, it just started. Like, I was just you doing like. A punctual group of friends, bro. Yeah, they, they he was just up. calling you out, Carlos, for not showing up for the last two, three weeks. Yeah, it's been oh, a very uh, long time. Sticking a roll call. Yeah, I got five thirty meetings now. Uh, it's mo- it's a monster. No oh, man, five thirty meetings on a Friday. That does not sound like enjoyable. Every, for every other Friday. Damn. Um, yeah, guys. Well, welcome to the uh, to the office hour. I see some new faces as well. Happy to see you guys here. Um, so yeah, man. How's everybody doing? We got any questions? If anybody wants to take the floor, go for it. You guys know how it works. So I have, I think, probably a small question, but I was thinking about it earlier today. So somebody messaged me on LinkedIn. was like, hey, I found this course. Do you think I should take it? Will it teach me everything I know to be a data scientist? I was like, I don't know. So I looked at it on Udemy, and it had a curriculum that was like a mile long, including this whole unit on like more distributions than I have ever heard of. And so I was just curious... uh, in your, I don't know, you could say in the last year or maybe even in the last like five years of your work, how many different kinds of distributions have you used or um, thought about or worried about? I mean, normal distribution for sure. I remember, I worked as a statistician for a while, so I've seen a bunch of different distributions and as an actuary as well. But ones that like I could say people should probably most definitely spend their time on, obviously, normal distribution, uniform distribution. Uh, I'd also say gamma, exponential Poisson and chi-squared, I mean, TF, I I think those would probably be be the more common ones to know that I think, you know, you should just at least have an awareness of and what their shapes look like. I mean, to a certain extent, maybe, maybe the Tweety distribution or any zero inflated distribution, because you'll see that a lot, I think, in um, e-commerce, most likely. Uh, Carlos, what do you think? I'd love to lead a confession on this. I was just posting in the chat my answer too. Go ahead, Tom. Distributions. They're a great thing to look up in your statistics book. End of story. 
I can't stand memorizing all the different types. It's just, okay, I'm going to need a distribution like this. What was that? Oh, I'm so glad I have these books to go refer to. Yeah, definitely use user textbooks as reference. I mean, I was studying for the actuarial exams. I took like four of them and I had to memorize these distributions and they were like just nightmares. Um, but it's, it's good to just have a couple in your back pocket um, just to just to know, like, oh, that looks interesting. What would that be? Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. this is this is why Harpreet, I save all of the most famous data scientist student on the planet's post, Greg Kakuyo. He just shares the best posts, and when he's learning, he's like, wow, I should try to remember that. That's because I rely on you guys to remember on my behalf because I can't remember any of it either. So I wouldn't dare use them in, in any projects anyways. So thanks for the compliment, Tom. Yeah. So Carlos, you're saying uh, as well, you, you're you mentioning some, um, you put some in the chat, but let's uh, have that vocalized for the audience. Yeah, I was just going to say one to the person who asked, hey, is this one course going to work for me? Just tell them yes, no matter what they send you. Because if they just need to get started and they're just like wasting time trying to find like the perfect one. So just tell them yes, no matter what they send you. Um, but just to talk about distributions, uh, normal, Poisson, Chi-Scared, uh, Wavel distributions are really useful for A-B tests. Um, the thing to know is mostly like go ahead and open up R and just look at all the distributions that just come right out of base and just like go ahead and plot those and be like, oh, okay, this is cool. And like there are different parameters in there because a lot of distributions are just like special transformations of more fundamental distributions. So you don't have to memorize them all. Just like see a few of them and then learn which ones are kind of related to the other ones and then Google as you need. Yeah, I forgot about the Weibull distribution. Um, it's been a while since I used that one. But yeah. I mean, I like what Carlos said. Like, if this is somebody just wanting to figure out how do I get started, where do I get started, just tell them, yeah, take that course, looks good. Cause... See, like, and I like kind of, so I don't know, I was like to argue, so I'm going to push back on it just a little bit. So he sent me that course, and like, I have like, there was like one specific course that I used when I got started, and it was really helpful. It was like that, the Coursera IBM professional certification, you know, so it was a really helpful start. If I would have had to go through 20 videos talking about everything from the Bernoulli distribution and beta distributions, and I don't even know what else distributions, just to get to the first part where it talks about like how to write a for loop, I would have quit. I would have just quit and gone home and been like, you know, I am too dumb for data science, right? You know, and so it's like, I think it's, yeah, I was like, okay, happy to see like that we could maybe potentially find something that would put you on less of an intimidating, less of an intimidating path that I think kind of sometimes sets people up to fail. Unless you're happy to jump around the table of contents, you don't have to, you know, eat the sandwich in order that, you know, it's just like jump and do whatever you want to do. But I just think that that almost is like put there to be impressive. Like, hey, look, you're going to learn all this stuff, which is why you should sign up for my course, but it might be a little overwhelming. I actually 100% agree with you on that. Because I think some of these courses do try to just boil the ocean. Um, but I mean, that that to me just sounds like all those different distributions. Like I didn't learn that in one semester of school. That was like three or four semesters of grad school, right? That I had to go through to be exposed to all these different distributions. It wasn't so, in one 10-hour Udemy course? Come yeah, on. no, it definitely was not one 10-hour Udemy course, no. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Makiko, looks like you got some great points in here as well. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, and I think... I feel like like at least 50% of the people on this call have gone through the gauntlet of like, how do you offer, it's like the bias variance trade-off, right? How do you offer advice that is generalizable, but also not like super specific to that one person and you're also not spending a hundred hours a week, right? Um, where I agree with the whole, like if they send something that's like above the bar, you know, like just say, yes, this is great. Um, where I like to intervene is um, in cases where, 
it's like really costly, you know? Um, cause I think I, for me personally, I, I want to maintain like data science and machine learning as being kind of an open space. So if someone's going for like a five, $600 course, or if they're like, Hey, is this boot camp good or whatever? Um, you know, I like to either go, Hey, uh, there's this like $0 one that maybe you want to take a look at first, just to sort of like gauge your interest level. Um, and if they've gone like, yes, I've, I've done the whole gauntlet of stuff uh, and I'm looking for something a little bit more robust, um, then I might, you know, I'll take a look at their resource because I'm always like on the lookout too for like interesting stuff. Um, but then usually I would try to like just gauge kind of their interests, you know, like what type of work would they be doing? And then I, I will either then say, you know, thumbs up to the resource or just point them to like one other thing. I think they're like, I've had this happen in the past of like recommending five to 10 things to people and then they just get super overwhelmed. And so for me, I'm just like, I'll go with the tried and true resources, zero dollars. And then just like an additional, uh, you know, reality check with them. You know, like for example, if they want to be doing more engineering work, I would, I'll just kind of steer them towards thinking about that or if they want to be doing more research work, thinking more about that and then kind of like leave them at that point um, to then like take on the next step. Um, Cause there, there's no reason why like you should, as someone who has paid, you know, um, a lot for like self-development, uh, there's no reason why that should be like the first thing people go to, uh, unless they're like super, super like committed to the path, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of great free resources because most university courses will have their university syllabus and coursework just up and available for people to like get for free class notes and all that stuff. Uh, but I mean, it, it's hard to kind of pave your own learning path as well, which is a bit of a challenge, but that is the excellent skill to develop is how to pave your own learning path. A lot of great comments in the chat regarding, uh, you know, all these different distributions. Russell, I see you have some great points if you want to go ahead and share. Evening, all. Um, yeah, so I was just talking about uh, other more basic uh, distributions uh, with statistics, you know, for um, uh, probability estimating, uh, you know, single points, three points, et cetera. Um, which, which I tend to use a little bit more in the job uh, that I do more commonly, which is kind of catalyzing the data science and the business analysts and the business intelligence uh, stuff. So, so I'm kind of a little more deeply rooted in those. So those are kind of um, not quite second nature, but um, I just do more in those, in those fields. Um, so when you were talking about distributions, just wanted to kind of uh, pull it back to that, that, that basic level also. And uh, I'm trying to remember now what the other point I, I said was that, let me let me go back up the uh, the chat. Yeah, no worries. Oh, there's, been, there's been a lot of messages. I can't. What, what was the other thing I said there? Oh no, that was actually just the point that you're talking about. Don't try okay, to okay, all cool. the distributions. There's relationships between them, right? And I think that's. Oh sure, you're, yeah, that was that was the other thing. Yeah, so yeah, just don't try to um to to understand every single distribution um at once. Uh, you know, start with some and, and try to understand them because there are um, connections and relationships with some. So there is kind of a more of an organic learning path between them. You go from one and it's it's similar to another. So then learn the differences between that rather than take everything as uh, you no, know, it's the same. You know, you don't pick up a dictionary and try to learn absolutely every word at the same time. You go through sections and um, find the relationship and it helps you embed that uh, that intelligence in the uh, in the mind, you know, so do you don't forget it. Right on. Thank you. Um, so before uh, we go to Greg's question, I, I want to shout out Austin in the building. Haven't seen Austin in a while. Nicholas, what's up, man? Good to see you guys here. Um, Vin, I want to ask you, man, if, if you were to relearn data science and machine learning, what, what, what would be like the first 
three things you would want to focus on learning. So I'd love to love to hear from Vin on this and Tom as well. I, you know, I don't know if I'd have three that were original, but I think I have one at least that that's interesting. I wish somebody had sat me down and told me how much a software development is BS and how much a corporate culture is BS and how much of, you know, the, the everything from research to applied putting things to production is BS and how many layers of that, you know, how much skepticism I should have had coming into the field. I wish someone would have taught me to become a professional skeptic and have a way higher or excuse me, way lower trust setting so that when I heard something, you know, because I spent a lot of my very early career and very early learning chasing what very smart, well-intended people put out that ended up being garbage and participating in corporate culture in a lot of ways that were not productive. And so I wish, like I said, I, I wish there was a class that you sat down in and instead of teaching you what was, you know, all this wonderful rosy picture of the corporate world and work world and the science world and the research side and the math side and everything else, I wish there was a reality check class. So I would say, seek out people who have, who have had enough of the garbage and like, listen to them for a couple of months because they will narrow down so much of what you have to learn to the very basics that'll get you into the field. And then you kind of get your own filter. Damn. I like that. I, I see David wants to chip in here as well. So David, let's hear from you. So it's just real quick. There actually, um, there actually is a course on that and I'm reading a book right now called BS, but spelled out. Um, <laughs> and it's a bright orange book. You can find it on Amazon. And I started reading it yesterday, but it seems like the whole intention of the book is to call out BS in STEM jobs and help people be able to figure it out. And I agree with you as well. And that's actually um, one of my one of my biggest annoyances was that I actually thought that I missed the boat on the whole AI thing um, because of how much people were talking about it a couple of years ago. And I was furious with myself because I was too busy uplifting ancient servers at the time. And I thought somehow I had destroyed my career by completely missing this whole thing. Um, and then I was reading a book called Superintelligence that was saying that the AI revolution hasn't started yet and it's not really going to be here for a while. Um, and true AGI is not going to be here for another 80 years or whatever. And so there is so much a there is so much hype and bullcrap in this field and being able to cut through it is important. And I sometimes feel like I come across trollish on LinkedIn uh, because I just can't be around BS. And so, um, yeah, in part of your career, you're going to just become you're, you're going to build up good defenses against BS. So there is a book on it. There is a college class taught on it. That I've never taken, um, but there are people that are just as furious about this stuff. So, is that the book called "Calling Bullshit"? I think it's just called "Bullshit," <laughs> but maybe, the, maybe it's "Calling Bullshit." Yeah, it's orange. The, the art of skepticism in a data-driven world by Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West. Does that sound like that book? Possibly. Is it bright orange? Uh, this one's yellow or um, yellow. Yeah, all right, I, cool. Yeah, so, all right, I'm gonna try to get those guys on the show. Um, cool. Thank you. Good. Good looking out for that one. Um, so I was going to ask Tom, Tom, do you want to talk about what you would study the first like two or three things if you were to read, go into data science? Then we'll get to Greg's question. I promise Greg, we'll get to your question. And while Tom, Tom is answering 
uh, this question. If you guys have questions, go ahead, type them out into the chat and I will put you into the queue. Uh, I want to add that uh, I've got a friend on here today. He's not very well known, but Ben Taylor was talking about the myth of job security. And that is a fact, even for a PhD. In fact, this is perhaps just one of the many targets I've created for myself by being a PhD. But I felt like I got grilled unfairly more hard on technical interviews because I, I almost felt like there was maybe a joy in taking me down, which I confess to everyone. I'm easy to take down. I don't know everything. Uh, all I've proven by getting my PhD is I can go deep and, you know, that, that's all it proves, really. That's why it does stand for piled higher and deeper. But the real point here, I started doing data science work my freshman year in undergrad. I didn't, well, we didn't call it data science back then. Why do I say that? I was learning least squares. What am I getting at? It's, it's uh, not reasonable to expect your first role to be as a data scientist or a data analyst. Get a good role that's close to data where you know you can use data to make a difference and build a name for yourself as someone that's really good at using data to make a difference. And then build your resume saying, I was in this role and I did this with data. Now go find another role where you can advance from there. I did this with data. Before long, you've got a data science resume. You don't really have to have a data science title to build data science or data analyst experience. So to me, that's the biggest thing to look for. And so um, there's some great points in the chat here about uh, boot camps and uh, various courses that weren't university. And, and Eric's point's good too. If you want to go back, get a master's so you can get a, a PhD role, um, or excuse me, get a data science role, do that. That's great. Uh, but if if you just want to get into data science without getting a master's or PhD. There are ways to do it. You just got to get pretty creative. And uh, and I, I think to Ben's point, the way you create that job security is do a good job in your roles with data practitioner type work, really solid work, and then build up that portfolio. It can rep. It can be abstractions of what you did on your job, so you're not giving away company company secrets. It can show. Uh, the spirit you have about learning uh, the latest things outside your job in your GitHub profile, in your Stack Overflow answers, in writing for various blogs and creating your own blog, uh, really creating your online portfolio has endless dimensions. And uh, I feel like I've talked too long, but um, it's there's so many avenues. Don't don't think there's one best avenue. Absolutely love it. Great message, Tom. Thank you so much. I think Eric is actually somebody who's really good at just making opportunities happen in any job he is to use data and, and just get after it. So he's definitely somebody you guys want to reach out to. I just want to read a couple of things from the chat. Kristen says that it's tough as someone entering the field, the entry-level jobs out there are asking for master's or PhD. Uh, seems a disconnect from the community, which really embraces the power of self-learning over the degrees and these hiring managers emphasizing the degree, not the passion and self-learning. Excellent point. I think Eric Weber had made a post um, about this actually earlier today, and I thought that was a really, really good post. Um, somebody should link to it if you get a chance. Um, um. I would like to add to that. If, oh, um, yes, okay. absolutely. Yeah, so um, I think like Thomas Pond, um, I don't know, is, is that the way, right way to say your name? Um, okay, I think his point is right because I, I was surprised in a way that how people actually seek for talents. So before I applied for like, you know, like try to make my resume look super nice and stuff, 
uh, like put a lot of courses in there and then I apply for job, congress of job, but uh, they don't reply to me. But you, like when I start putting my articles out and, you know, um, like just post a lot, I, re- I receive like four or five offers just because they read my article. That's it. So I think um, now people find a more creative way to look for candidate rather than looking the resume. So I think they like to sit them in the place that, um, you know, like they can see um, how they can, that candidate can contribute the skill that um, they're working on, which show on their article to their organization. Excellent point. Thank you very much, Kuyen. Really appreciate that. Uh, Greg? Let's get to your question, man. Sorry to keep you waiting. Oh, no, no problem. I just wanted to build on Eric's question earlier. I guess my question is, how do you build or is there any, are there any courses out there to help you build intuition for connecting the dots between real life use cases and distributions, right? So to me, I think, you know, you can be very good at the, um, you know, theoretical side of things, you can learn a lot of distribution and things like that, but building intuition for real business use cases, um, to me, it's a very uh, good way to uh, position yourself uh, in creating value for, for any businesses. Any materials that you have um, for that would definitely help me uh, in that sense. So just a general question for anyone. Yeah, let's hear from Ben Taylor on this, then let's hear from Vin and Mikiko. Sorry, Greg, guys put out a fire. Uh, can you restate your question? Got my full attention now. No, I was uh, the, I was thinking about, so one of the key things for me is, you know, there's a lot of materials out there, but I do value being able to build intuition uh, for connecting the dot between real life business use cases and say a technical side, like understanding which of the distributions might be a better fit to investigate, you know, and solve a, a, a business use case. So are there any materials that we can use to kind of build that intuition or what is the best method to, to be able to do that? So look at a, a problem and say, oh, uh, this distribution, I can say that if we kind of research it and, and uh, dig into it, could be a good a good starting point to solve problems, that particular problem. So more closing the applied gap of the, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think there's definitely a gap there. I've heard people complain a lot about this because you have new students that read the content and then they're unprepared, but they read the content. They're still unprepared. And then you have people that have a lot of gray in the industry where we've made all the mistakes. We've paid the tuition. And um, so I'm curious what other people on this, on the call think for applied resources. Cause I, unfortunately I feel like I just, rely on my own mistakes and experience and for other people on the call sharing from their mistakes and experience. And that's definitely a gap that's been called out before. And and I think actually that goes all the way back to that question on some employers want previous work experience. Like, you know, we, we have roles open right now where we want four years applied experience where it's kind of hit, hinting on this. Um, I'm curious what anyone else has to say about. Yeah. Let's hear from my gap. Let's hear from Vin. And then uh, Tom looked like Tom had some great insight in the chat as well. And then, so we'll do Vin, Tom and Mikiko. I think this is one of our biggest problems is there is no unified definition of data science. There is no one way to do data science. Everything from company size to availability of data for the company to capabilities to, I mean, there's so many factors that go into how a company decides it's going to do data science 
that trying to you know, design this curriculum around it is really, really hard to do. In order to have the resources to build that comprehensive of a curriculum, you almost have to be a university. But the problem with the university is that their curriculum has to be much, much broader because they have so much uh, you know, so much coverage that they have to do in a data science program in order to attract enough candidates to make it viable. And so the ability for them to change and adapt as fast as the field is going is limited. So you have on one side boot camps that really are under-resourced to tackle the problem. And on the other side, you have universities, which just the reality of being a university makes it very difficult to keep up with the rapid pace of change. And then you have this final problem that all of us in the field haven't figured out what we really want to define the data science lifecycle, machine learning model development lifecycle, the research lifecycle, the data lifecycle. We haven't defined these in any sort of unified way. And so those three competing forces mean that there's, there's, it's mission impossible. You know, we, we all say we need this, but you'll hear the education institutes, institutions kind of push back and the boot camps push back. And I've had two different colleges ask me if, they'll, if I'll build their curriculum for them. And I've, so you can tell I've rehearsed this answer a few times. It, you can't, there's no win here. Well, is the gap, uh, reaction to that is the gap, the, the missing applied data sets where the real world data sets are so much different. They're so much nastier. They have all these things that are missing from Kaggle and kind of the educational approach. Even in, in college, they may not be hammering on what we see in the real world where there's a lot of oh crap moments and yikes and why is this this way? The real world was was never nice, but in college, everything felt nice. Everything felt safe. I don't so, think there, yeah, I don't think there's any safe spaces left. A uh, quick answer. <laughs> Uh, when it comes to data, I don't think there's any safe space, uh, you know, not from the, the social side of safe space, but I'm saying from the, you know, this is a safe and easy route where if you do this, it's safe and you'll probably have good results. That doesn't exist. Yeah, it's uh, there's no safety, Greg. Uh, ben was actually giving you the best answer. It's just because I have a few years on him that I can summarize it a little better. Greg, you've signed up to become, as uh, our dear friend Eric Sims put it, a mental fighter. To get good at mental fighting, it's going to take blood, sweat, and tendonitis. And your tendonitis is going to happen right here in your mouse finger. But I can tell you something that I wished someone had told me when I was at your point, more visualization. I can't tell you how many times I've wasted more time than I needed to because I didn't take the additional effort to put more visualization at each step in my process. So I would gain more insight into what I was doing. And it, so you get in there, you work hard, you do visualizations, you ask yourself a lot of questions. What does this mean? It's like planting a seed in your brain. You might not get the answer till a day later to two years later, but it will come. Those insights will come, but it's just, it's a long hike. And the more questions you force upon yourself, the faster you'll grow. Absolutely. And one of the reasons I'm asking is because I, I grew up in the French system and in that system just trained me to memorize the theoretical world. And while I was cut off from the practical use of that theory. So even now in the, in the, industry now, it takes me a while. And visualization is one thing that can help me pull, like plug it in uh, a little bit better with that theory and that real life application. So, and, and, you know, to me, it, it's really helpful. And this is something I wish that people who are actually uh, going to school in that system can, can, can use to, to be better. 
So thank you for our responses, guys. So if I can suggest a... Oh, go, go ahead, Harp. No, no, no. I was just going to, sorry, it was from above. Greg, that just comes with doing real world projects over time and thinking a lot and doing yes. tons of visualizations throughout the process. Go, Harp. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, um, like in terms of like a book or resource, one thing that I've um, that I've been reading, it's this is Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. It's by Andrew Hunt, who wrote Pragmatic Programmer, who I'm interviewing next week for uh, the podcast. And uh, he essentially talks about this, this book is, is all about how to go from a novice to an expert. And then in this, he talks about how experts have developed this level of intuition and he really breaks it down. So um, uh, are you in the Slack community, Greg? Because if you are, I think there's a link to this book in there. Um, So Andrew Hunt, sorry if I'm pirating your material and giving it to free for free to my community. Um, But yeah, it, it, this book is really, really cool. It's um, I highly recommend checking this out. Um, cool. So I see Tor's hand is up. I'll add you to the queue, Tor. But before we get to Tor, I've got uh, Jaya up for a question. Jaya, go for it. Okay. I have a question. I work for a small biomedical company and there is no data team in there. There, is, there aren't any data engineers or data scientists. So I'm trying to create a data project uh, myself and I'd like to find out from all of you or anyone, how do I create a data project in my company? What, what do I need to do to the, the, the management's uh, buy-in? So the, question- uh, the other thing is data uh, in this company, they, this is a family-run company, so data is protected. But I did bring up, uh, did suggest that, you know, data can help the company. I, I want to create a project for them, uh, but I need to get some buying uh, from them. So I need to know some steps or so anyone who had this experience before who can share with me a little bit of how you got the buy-in and how you created the project and et cetera. Yeah. So that's a pretty big question is like, how do I convince management to take on a data project and you have to be a salesperson in this case, right? So I'll open it up to the floor, but I think definitely start by maybe identifying a pain point that they are facing, right? Connect that to whatever business strategy they have, right? Because ultimately, nobody's really going to endorse or sponsor a project unless it really helps them achieve whatever objectives they have. So if you can tie it specifically to whatever objective they have in the next quarter, in the next two quarters, by the end of the year, and then sell it to them. Like, okay, you guys are trying to achieve this. Well, guess what? If we look at this data over here and then I do these things to it, we can do this, which is going to exceed or at least meet your goal quicker. Um, let's, let's open this up to, uh, let's open it up to Makiko and then we'll go from there. So just one question I have. Um, so as a person who believes data can do a lot of things, uh, are you wanting to do a data project for yourself or for the company? And, and what I mean by that is, is are for there- the company because- so, so there are specific pain points that you are observing due to a lack of data. Sorry, is that- is- um, Yeah, so they use, yeah, I'd say I want to do a project for the company because I, I think they'll value from it. And I feel like I want to add value to it and let them see, you know, a, you know data can help your company. Uh, so I see they do a lot of stuff on Excel for everything uh, from customer complaints and they, and this, Everything's on Excel and, you know, creating documentation is all in Excel and, you know, and they have, they create assays because they have biomedical, so everything is done on Excel. So basically I want to take them one step 
up and show them, you know, hey, you can do this, you know, with better than Excel. And I see few things that I think I can help with. So basically, I'm trying to create a data project for the company. I'll chime gotcha. in really quick. Mm-hmm. No, go yeah. ahead, Kegel, sorry. Yeah, no, um, Carlos, you have some good points. Sorry, I guess like what I would say, I would just kind of reiterate, um, you know, Harpreet's points, which is that at least from working with like startups and, and early stage businesses and all that, um, a lot of times the minute you sort of bring cost and sort of uh, effort into the conversation, sometimes mom and pop and small businesses will sort of like shy away because they're like, we're kind of already cash and energy strapped. So uh, what I would first do is focus on the, like, what are some like low hanging fruit sort of pain points? Uh, Cause a lot of times if you sort of come in with like that first huge data project, there's a chance of uh, there's a, a risk of failure. Um, but also, you know, it, it, be, it can be kind of challenging so I would say first identify kind of with some low hanging fruit problems, okay. um, focus directly on what sort of they will get out of it. What is the specific pain points um, that you are solving? Um, and then at that point, uh, Carlos, you can chime in at like here. I, I just feel like usually it's like you want to center the value, the conversation on like value pain point. Um, and then after that, then you can go to like strategy and action because there's a lot of tools okay. out there especially open source and all that. Yeah, let's okay. hear from Carlos and then yes. Tor. So like I had this problem, but not in the biomedical context. Like I was at a terrible job situation and they were just like, I was working with Word documents and Excel documents that like not structured at all, no templates and everything was done by hand pretty much. And I wanted it to be a data problem too. Like I was like, oh, I can make an app out of this. And I did eventually do this. I want to make an app out of this, blah, blah, blah. But the first thing I did was just what's like in my control and like my input. They don't care how I do it as long as it's the right output. So I just started there, made my own templates, studied how to get like Word and Excel documents to like be read by my R script consistently. Once I got that figured out, I just asked for more work that I could just like I could just eat because I already had it all scaled up. And once they saw that, it was easy to say, oh, I want to do like data and all this fancy stuff, but let's start with the obvious process improvement templates. Um, you know, if they're using Excel files, can you get them to, instead of opening a new Excel every time, can you get them to maybe upload their Excel files to an access database that you make? Or can you get them to use Excel templates that you design for them? And then you just do it and then only tell them once you've generated something of value. Like just do it yourself on the side a little bit to prove it out. Because uh, otherwise you're going to have this whole thing of trying to sell them something when they're not in the mindset to buy. Okay. Thank you, Carlos and Kiko. Yeah. It's always a nice thing, right? Like when you sort of like build something on the side as a pet project and then you kind of present it and it's like wonderful to like your boss or like the key stakeholders. And they're like, oh, it'll take forever to like build this. And you're like, no, it's just, you know, it was like a week or two. Can I, you know, can I look how much value. <laughs> I, could, I could add something real quick, unless Tor, you wanted to go before me. Just uh, briefly, I mean, Carlos pretty much kind of uh, aced it right there. Because to me, the, the, the key here is that if you're sitting in an organization, like I, I'm not a data analyst as such, but I like to make my day more efficient and, you know, creating these uh, standards, etc. I would start just going talk to certain people that, you know, have a huge workload where they use inefficient tools, whether or forms or methods and take that and start there and maybe take four or five samples and just start building something for yourself on your own. And when you have a result, then go and present it because now you have a use case. You actually can show that 
if they were using this method, they will then be more efficient. And then you can start indicating the other benefits that come along with it. By now getting centralized data, it's more in control, you can manage it better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That is the key. Like whenever I've done something myself, I've developed budget models, I've developed uh, time sheets, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, I've always done Excel for the last 20, 30 years. But, you know, when you can go and show that instead of spending a week to do budgets, you can actually do it in one day. We're using Excel and interlinking documentation, standardizing the format that's being used for input. the, 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 The feedback you will get isn't a question of how much it's going to cost. It's just going to be a question of what can we do? Can you run with it and make a a presentation and a budget for it? And at the end of the day, I don't know what kind of turnover you have here, how much data we're talking, but start there. That's highly what I would recommend. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I do a lot of product documentation. I do a lot of internal audits and there's a lot of customer complaints. You know, that's everything is everywhere. And I, I think we can definitely leverage data to kind of help this. I want to help them because the, the VP of ops is really good to me and I want to help her out and make it better for her. So, yeah. And I, I do have a question because uh, during the Sunday mentoring call, uh, I believe uh, someone, uh, Mark Freeman, I guess, he mentioned Eric Sims might have some ideas. So he told me to reach out to you too. So, yeah. Yeah. I see you over there, Eric. Yeah. But you were, your name came up and you, apparently you were, you were doing a lot of data stuff or creating data stuff at your company. So I wanted to get your feedback. Cool. Okay. <laughs> Didn't, uh, didn't expect that to come along. <clears throat> uh, maybe we should chat after. <laughs> like totally like caught off guard as I'm moving yeah. around. That's fine. I mean, section. if you want to chat, after, chat after, it's fine. Yeah. No problem. I'd love to hear from, uh, so Greg, let's hear what you guys are saying. Yeah. I definitely want to hear from Vin on this and, and Ben around the topic of how to get stakeholder buy-in for data projects. Uh, go for it, Greg. Yeah, I think we, we all agree that uh, the low-hanging fruits are definitely the way to go. And building your own tool, uh, run that in parallel to what's currently being used by the many. It's probably the best strategy. Uh, you build a scrappy solution and you showcase how it's running better. Now, once you prove that it's running better, Here's my favorite way of convincing business folks when you want to be sponsored for a bigger project. If you want to scale your scrappy solution, you have to gather data for sure. And on that pain point, you have to showcase what is the risk. So you have to put the fear of risk into the business person responsible for that uh, 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 product. And because a lot of you know business folks, they want to say, okay, if I give you money to execute this project, how much are you going to save uh, in terms of headcount, et cetera, et cetera, or how much more money you will uh, generate for the business. It's not always about that. There's also the underlying risk of not doing that project because it could be a lost, it could be a human error based on the current processes that you, your team is using that caused, I don't know, a $10 million loss. If you can gather data around that and put the fear of risk into them, they will get alignment on your scrappy solution. If your scrappy solution is already working uh, and showing better performance than the current uh, uh, settings. I like that, Greg. Thank you. Uh, so let's hear from, from Vin and then Ben. I usually approach it this way. Greed, for lack of a better term, is good. So there is someone along the way who makes a bonus every year based on some metric, some measurement. Someone bonuses 
off of something that you can change. And if you can figure out what it is that incentivizes a person who might be one of the gatekeepers who helps you get access to whatever resources you need or green light, or, uh, you know, maybe it's funding, maybe it's data. I, I don't, I don't know which one's really the biggest barrier to getting you to be able to move forward, but figure out what it is that they care about uh, from a monetary standpoint. And a lot of times that can be tied to compensation. So you've heard a lot of great suggestions, you know, so take pretty much everybody's feedback so far into account because it's all really good. But if you find yourself struggling, occasionally the bureaucracy can be moved forward by figuring out how people bonus and figuring out how their compensation is figured out and how their promotions are figured out. There may be, you know, it sounds devious, but it really isn't. Everybody wants to make more money and you helping them is not a horrible thing, but that can oftentimes get things moving forward rather quickly. I love what you just said, Ben. So I, one of the things I've heard people talk about is statistics have to move to KPIs, but what you're talking about is that it has to move past KPIs into OKRs. So literally quarterly bonuses. So I, I've got quarterly bonuses for me and I can yeah, exactly measure what matters. And I can imagine if someone's pitching something to me, the reaction would be, I'm too busy, not a priority, too busy. But if they pitch something to me that fills lines up with my OKRs, they suddenly have my full attention. And that's true of um, the other thing I was thinking about is you don't actually need their buy-in necessarily. And maybe this goes back to something that maybe Greg hinted at was, or, or I was thinking about when Greg was talking is if you have a good idea and if you think you can get to success or something that will get their attention, you don't need their approval like you can go do stuff, work late, work on the weekend, uh, but really try to align with the problem. I think a common mistake in the industry is it's AI looking for a problem and that's bad. That's really bad. You don't want to be there. You want to find a problem that matters and back into the appropriate solution. So start with the OKRs, start with the greed or what matters to them back into the solution. And if you can compress that in 30 days and show a proof of concept and then have confidence behind that, because confidence is kind of a tricky thing. Because if you're very timid and you're kind of suggesting like, oh, look at these results, it could help. They're not going to feel confident betting on you. But if you have some signal of success and it aligns with their OKRs, and if you have confidence that this will work, these are the timescales. I think that's, I think that works. Then Nicholas has some really great points here. Two marketing mantras. Nicholas, if you want to share Thank, those. All right. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, um, the, the marketing mantras, but I think they're really applicable to trying to get something across the line. Um, selling the benefits, not the features. It can be... White. we typically try and fall back on the features of what it is that we're trying to sell and we'll talk about things in terms of technology but actually if we can get as close to the world as the people that we're trying to sell to we can talk about the bottom line we can talk about cost savings these are things that are going to resonate with with people who've got decisions to make um and and secondly it, it's it's a bit of a, a funny one. Um, I'm probably butchering the saying because I'm not in marketing, but you often hear that about people will walk to pleasure but run from pain. Um, often the best time to get somebody to act, I think it's a little bit similar to what Greg was talking about. If you can frame your idea in terms of refusal to ask, uh, act will result in something terrible happening, that will often strike action. Right on. So Jaya, it looks like Perfect. you got a ton. Thanks, everyone. Looks like you got a ton of great advice. Don't worry. This yeah. will all be put right up on the podcast and on YouTube, along with everything in the chat. Speaking of the chat, shout out to uh, somebody who went out of his way to do something awesome. And that is Emmanuel. And I'm going to butcher his last name, Vasadilas. Uh, yes. So he made this thing that just parses the text 
uh, sorry, the, the chat transcript text and like pulls out all like links and stuff like that. Uh, Emmanuel, if you could link to your project that you did for the RC data science right here on the chat so people could check it out. I really appreciate that. Thank you, by the way, for doing that for me. Um, let's go on and move to Tor's question. Then after Tor, we'll go to Akshay. Then after Akshay, we'll go to Vivian. So Tor, go for it. Actually, the, the question wasn't really a question. It's more related to a previous topic that I just kind of wanted to follow up. But well, okay. I'll, I'll let it go for now. Yeah, you right can on. continue to the next one. Right on. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for that, Tor. Let's go to Akshay. All right. First off, I want to thank, uh, by sharing the news, that last week we had some participants show their projects at a data challenge. And uh, with everyone's feedback on this call, uh, they were able to make enough changes and present their analysis to back an award for the best project that drove results. So thank you, everybody, to help last week. And uh, I hope such students can participate in our calls more often. Uh, moving in to the question that's been bothering me since afternoon, uh, I'm working on a project where I'm scraping off data from an HTML file. I'm using beautiful soup uh, to just kind of make the JSON and everything look pretty and just output the files. What I want from the output is just um, a numeric text, which follows a certain pattern which is basically an order number and the name associated with that order. So I'm trying to output this into a dictionary. And so far what I have is an output from the HTML, but I'm trying, I'm kind of struggling parsing out the unwanted tags or unwanted text that's in the output. So anyone has any suggestions on how Beautiful Soup can combine with regex and get what I want? Ben, go for it. Uh, so with these scraping problems, they can become, they can consume a lot of your time. And I paid a woman in India $10 to scrape the entire U.S. sex offender, all states, $10. It would have taken me half a day to figure that crap out. And so I'm, I'm smirking over here because I'm laughing because what you're bringing up is actually a hard problem. But if you go on Odesk or Elance, hopefully that burns a hole in people's brains. $10 to do something that I don't think I was capable of doing in half a day's work. And she did the work before I paid her. Sorry. I, I didn't mean to like ruin the, the, the question. No, but you're right. That's what I always think of when I think of scraping because scraping is like problem after problem after problem after problem. Um, Sorry. So maybe no, someone else can have a better. A lot of people answer. say this in consulting, even like we hear these problems all the time. Like, oh, can we use RPA to do optical character recognition? Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, are you sure it's big enough to where you just can't have someone do it? And like for commercial clients, we say Amazon Mechanical Turk, Upwork, Fiverr. Like, we don't, we don't want shy to say that it's probably not a problem bad enough to warrant programming. Like, that's just reality. Like, Amazon Mechanical Turk's whole premise is that. <laughs> I would so, also ask if it upsets you or if it brings you joy. If you enjoy doing the work, then do the work. But for me, it would make me mad. I I hated that work. I just got so frustrated. That's so what's happening with me right now. Like I've been, I've spent like two hours looking up the code, and I think I have the right direction, but it's just not working in the code. So I need someone who's done something similar and just tell me where I'm going wrong. Uh, but I would love to know who that person is. Like ten dollars, I'll do it if I can get the work done. So I have a question. So are you just trying to get the text out of a page of HTML? Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah. So not just the text, there's two parts. I'm looking at an order number, which follows a certain pattern. So there's like a text, 
uh, starting with a few alphabets, which have a pattern. And then there's a number, which is an order associated with each person. And then I also want the name of the person, which is in a div tag. But again, I can parse that out. So in my output, I see the order number and I see the name of the person. But in between, there is a lot of other garbage. So I'm trying to clean that out. Even though it's part of the same TD tag, I'm not able to like filter it out. So thinking of ways how I can maybe use regex or some other approach to get that. Okay, because I, I I was working on a classifier last year um, where I had two pieces to it. And one was to extract the raw text, I mean, only the text. And the other was I was actually interested in the tags as well. Um, and so if you only, if you want to pull out the text, that might make it easier for you for like entity extraction or something like that. Just disregard the HTML entirely. Um, and you can do that with... Um, beautifulsoup.gettext. It's just called get text. And so that will throw away all of your HTML if you wanted to just try that approach. Okay, of course. And there's also another approach I saw like HTML to text. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a Python library that you can add in. Has anyone used that? Like, would you recommend that over beautiful soup or is beautiful soup the better approach in just, this case? Just use beautiful soup or also end up in a weird thing where you're running like a V8 Chromium thing to like... <laughs> You don't just use beautiful yeah. soup. Yeah. You can also do like a combination of like, I mean, what I've done for a lot of them is like requests JSON normalize um, and then test out the regex patterns on the regex or cookbook. Um, and then essentially like you can do like some kind of enumeration through the lines. I mean, if, if you're doing this for like a commercial project, I would just definitely just pay someone to do it. Um, but there is value to like learning how to solve the problem just because like in a lot of like in some of the, like the, like the Fang interviews, for example, they're like, hardcore on data structures and algorithms and things like that. So it's like useful as like a toy project to do it. But that's kind of because I, I for me, I found I found beautiful soup to like <laughs> to be a little hard sometimes. So but the combination of requests, uh, JSON normalize uh, enumeration through the lines from like standard Python is actually really, really good. Um, and it's forced me to get better too on like my my bash scripting as well. So it's a lot of good things. Okay, I'll definitely check that out. Thank you, everyone. So one of my more one of my more repeated uh, phrases on this show is what Makiko said. Um, seriously, uh, you know, think about it this way: if you expect that you're going to need to do some web scraping in the future, get into Beautiful Soup, get good at it. It's not that hard, but if you're doing one-offs. Uh, it's a pain in the ass, but it's worth learning once. And then once you have a library of routines, you'll be able to leverage from those in the future. And uh, it it can be quite powerful. But again, I, I like Ben's solution for one-offs and I feel your pain, Ben, for not being able to verify that. But we do believe you, Ben. We really do. Yeah. Vin also co-signs Mikiko's approach. So there you go. Try Mikiko's approach. And I think there's a text in the... Um, the Slack channel that's like uh, web scraping with Python, I think, which is all based on beautiful soup. So check that book out in the Slack channel. I'll, uh, I'll try to find it in tag unit. Um, right on. So next question goes to Vivian. Okay. Um, I put this in the chat, but um, I just would be curious to hear from anybody. What are your oh crap moments? Like, do you have any times when you did a project and then later realized that you made some mistakes, and but it was already like too late implementation began or completed? Um, and what did you do? And bonus points for whoever has the biggest mistake. 
who wants to go? I, I think my, my... I, I, I hear biggest mistake. I've got a short one. Uh, every, I know everyone's thinking they're going to talk about code problems. Uh, three in the morning, I'm in our data center and I'm racking a server and I don't know how to rack a server and it falls out of the cabinet and 20 terabytes of drives go spilling out and land on the floor. And these are physical drives and all that data is bad. So I destroyed 20 terabytes of data at three in the morning and it was important data. I can't remember what I said, but it wasn't good. So if, if any of you've seen the movie Annapolis, Ben, I want to thank you. I thought I could beat you, but you're my Mississippi dude. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> uh, you wanted a, a physical failure, not a software failure. <laughs> Well, I love that, like all of us on this call, like sometimes we think like data scientists, we're so smart and racking a server. If you don't know how to do it, like when someone shows you how to do it, you're like, the like obviously, but if you don't know how to do it, I, I felt like a real dumbass. And, and, and plus, I, how much was that server? It's like a $120,000 server that I dropped to. Like, luckily it worked, but the, the data hurt the most. So Dave, uh, Nikki Barker, go for it. I think you're muted. Okay. So this was like 20 years ago. Um, and it was something that I created and we still had very, very few users at the time. So this was like right after um, version one even hit production. But at the time, it was a MySQL database and I was using a timestamp as a primary key, which was a really stupid, stupid idea. Um, and so eventually I saw that I should probably just make the primary key and auto in increment integer. And when I did that, um, there, there was another, um, I kept the timestamp field and um, I just added the primary key. But my old method of updating data was off of the timestamp. And so somebody asked me to update their data for them at the time. And it updated every single row in the database to, uh, it just updated every single row in the entire database, which is the same thing as destroying all of the data. Um, and this thing was so new that the, I, I didn't have good backups at the time or anything like that. And so we just had to learn from our mistake. Um, there was only a few hundred, probably a few hundred rows in there at the time. But it was pretty embarrassing having to explain it to my boss and there's no coming back from that. So that's uh, to this day, one of my horror stories. <laughs> Uh, man, you guys, you guys got some good ones. Um, I would definitely want to hear from anybody else who wants to go for it. But I, I would say, I guess my biggest fail is it came at the end of my tenure at a, a job that I had a couple of years ago, which I freaking was hands down one of my favorite jobs I've ever had. And I had worked on some stuff that I did not yet push uh, into our repository yet. So there's a bunch of unchanged work. And since I was leaving the job, um, I just wanted to remove all of my stuff from my laptop and I did a, a RM-R on my workspace without pushing my changes and um, it completely uh, left them hanging. I had to redo a bunch of stuff from scratch. Uh, I feel bad for that one, but I was like, oh shit. Uh, Rodney, let's hear from you and then anybody else wants to go, go for it. Yeah, so my biggest mistake was while grading a stats class of around 1,800 undergrad students, uh, we had a sorting error when we were finalising the grades. And as a result of that, we had to regrade everything by hand. So that was, that was in Excel. After that, I switched to using databases to keep the data, which is a bit, a bit safer. That's also 20 years ago. Who'd like to go up next? Carlos, when's the last time you fucked up? Uh, I had a really bad one. It's actually funny because I ended up winning work now. But uh, had we're doing this modernization project and we're trying to get a bunch of really smart people to agree 
on how to make a decision, very hard to do. They're all very smart. We were like, okay, let's use analytic hierarchy process. And I explained to them what it was, gave them YouTube videos and everything. They're like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. So we spent weeks of time burning like hundreds of staff hours on this, like thousands of dollars of staff hours. And at the very end, we show up ready to like make them do a Qualtrics survey and like implement the process. So they have like a way to make a decision that like compares apples to apples across all these very different variables. And they were like, you know, this stuff just stresses me out. Like, I don't think we're ready to make a decision, blah, blah, blah. And then I said something where I thought I was like on mute. And I was like, this guy is such a douche. He's like always like saying no to us. And he's like, well, that's because I don't agree with you, Carlos. And then the project ended. Uh, I think the manager quit. And then like, it's like, we never did anything with that project. But it, I felt that way though. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, we just like wasted hundreds of hours and like destroyed our relationship with the team. But I think it was worth it. That's hilarious, man. Uh Let's hear from Tor, then Vijay, then Vin. I know. I mean, we all had our experiences, I'm sure. But, you know, getting training on using the back end and, you know, SQL and et cetera. But then there was a program that was being implemented. And technically in the back end, they had a delete button. And while, while I was getting training, I'm pretty much the quick on the trigger. Often a little bit too quick, but I figured I knew. So... They were just about to talk about the delete button, so I hit it, and it deleted pretty much everything that was there. Um, took us about three weeks to get it back up and running, and luckily there was a backup from a week before. So those things happen, you know. It's um, like we say, shit happens. <laughs> VJ, let's hear from you. All right, guys, I was just trying to plug my camera so it doesn't want to run. So that's okay. So this is uh, roughly 10, 15 years ago, and I will share my experience with you. So it's part uh, of uh, communication also and uh, how bosses uh, should behave. So I got a project at the time I was working as a web application developer. So I got to design a intranet for a very large local bank in uh, New York at the time. And I was given the project specs. Somebody has already worked on some part of it. And I had to just uh, do some uh, SSIS packages, uh, transfer data, do some ETL. So I does that. I do that, test it. Everything is good on my local machine. I am uh, signed off to go and uh, install everything which I did on the production environment at the bank. I check everything in the bank, check my database copy everything, run my scripts, everything is good, gets uh, okay from the uh, bank test team that uh, yes, the new functionality is working fine. I come back to the office, uh, I ask them uh, next day how things are going good or not. They said everything is kind of not good uh, because they had to do a restore. I didn't get why they had to do a restore. So after three, four days, I'm called back again. I do the my, my same sh- Thing steps which I had done, uh, make a backup of their database, run my scripts, and then do it. And then the second time, they also uh, they had to restore the database again because uh, my scripts had wiped out their banking customers' information at that time. The reason for that was that I was uh, told that this is a separate application, intranet application, which will be running separately from the regular banking information. So I was not aware of that. That was not communicated to me at that time. So it's just like sometimes you do the things which are right. You 
check everything out. But uh, if you don't have the right communication, right specs, you ultimately have made a boo-boo in that sense and uh, somebody has to get fired. So the boss couldn't fire his uh, son-in-law. So he had to fire me at that time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the same thing happened uh, just like as we were going to the bank, right? I didn't knew that the my boss is uh, my boss's boss. Who, how were they related? So I was just telling them that I like the Japanese way of uh, promotion. The best, the first way is uh, get married to the boss's daughter, or the second one is uh, get your boss promoted. So I tell tell him that also while we are going towards the bank. So it it was funny. It was not. It was funny now when I'm telling you and a couple of years after that. But when I replay the whole scene, it was not funny at all. Man, that's uh, that's a good one. Uh, before we get to Vin, I like this message here from Ben. I got plenty of Linux commands where I thought I was a Linux badass and executed terrible commands. Yes, that's happened to me many, many many, many times. Then, Is it bad that everyone's mentioned something that I've done at some time? <laughs> I've, I've learned the hard way about Rails on server racks. I have also made some mistakes with primary keys that I regret at this stage of my life. I have deleted things. I trained a model on production data once. That, that tends to slow web apps down. I just want to put that out there in case anyone doesn't know that because um, I did that once. Uh, No, my worst oh no moment was, so I was working a client, this was back in 2016, and they didn't have a data set that they needed. They didn't, we didn't really even know what kind of data they needed. They didn't have the data set. We weren't sure how they were going to get access to it. And they said, well, can you do that? I said, oh yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll just go find it. No problem. How hard can it be? It's hard. Data sourcing is really, really hard. There's no such thing as Google, where am I going to find this data? There's no stack overflow for data brokers and data sourcing or any of that. So never, ever, ever promise that you can find data because you may not be able to. And it's so hard. I, I learned over three very painful months how hard it can be to source data that's high quality from third parties that doesn't cost a billion dollars. Oh man, this is getting uh, this is getting good. Uh, Vivian, you've kicked off something awesome. Probably the uh, the best segment from Happy Hours in a while. Uh, so let's hear from Mark, and then from after Mark, we're going to hear from Greg. So this is actually pretty funny because I broke our product this week <laughs> with the, with the refactor I pushed in, and funny enough, the the fix to the refactor actually broke something else. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sh- save that story for another time when the wounds aren't as fresh. But uh, I'll, I'll tell the story of and something I'm really big on my LinkedIn post is stakeholder management, and the reason being is that I've been burned very heavily on this. Uh, the biggest one, almost losing a. One of our largest contracts um, uh, at the org uh, I was at now, my current one, but previous one. Um, Long story short, I used to work in in healthcare for ophthalmology. So you had uh, ophthalmology records um, for all the United States. And interesting about ophthalmology is we have two eyes, at least most people do. And so that makes really funny things for denominators when counting diseases. So I had this project where I needed to count uh, a certain type of procedure um, for eyes and basically you get the counts and the way this worked is I worked with sales sales will come to the data science team say like hey this is what we're trying to sell you know do our data can our data assets answer this and many times the people they're selling to are like PhDs professions 20 years so they're just testing like will we get the right answer they already know the answer but they want to see if we get the right answer so I pull the numbers um and this is my first time working in ophthalmology completely unaware of the two eye thing 
It's called bilaterality. And so my denominators were completely wrong um, because I was counting per person, but I needed to count per I. And so I essentially provided these numbers, but in big, bold letters on the top, I said, do not share until reviewed and, and like approved. But like the salespeople are just super like, cool, the numbers are here. I can finally get this like client off my back and give these numbers. And the numbers were shared. And the shit storm that pursued um, happened also right before I went on vacation. So I delivered this, <laughs> went on vacation um, and got plenty of calls of like, yo, what happened? Um, so essentially I've, I've really, since that experience, really put in a process of like really setting expectations setting like do not share um also like knowing when to say no to things um for like a crazy crazy task and then finally just like putting in processes where things can be documented and be like putting steps in so like from that specific experience i've like taken stakeholder management to the next level because like that was an intense experience i did not want to experience again and that that's a good one as well um so my wife listens to every single one of these office hours for i I don't know why she does but she does but she's also a eye doctor and uh, i know she'll find that story hilarious and also it's interesting now that you've connected the work i i do to the work she does so that's that's pretty cool thank you for sharing that story man i appreciate that uh greg and the only one i can think of um and i try to keep it deep into my memory don't want to live it again. Earlier in my career, I was in supply chain and uh, I was this cocky young Haitian trying to make a difference. And uh, I decided to automate uh, scheduling for my uh, guys who were actually producing uh, the products we sold and uh, ran it all weekend. Uh, So they ran $5 million worth of products that we were not supposed to produce and sell. So came Monday uh, after the weekend to... Uh, a floor full of bad materials that we're trying to figure out uh, what to do with. So blame the new guy, five million down the drain. And we're trying to figure out actually uh, simply because we're, um, it was a labeling industry. We're trying to find schools who would take these labels because the glue we produced was just trash. So uh, worst memory ever. For me, did you say five billion or five million? M- million, not billion, oh, billion, just for a weekend. Damn, that's crazy, man. Greg wouldn't <laughs> be here if it was five billion. No, <laughs> I wouldn't be. <laughs> absolutely not. Oh, man. Uh, so, someone who we haven't heard from, who I'd absolutely love to hear from, Tom, what, what have you done? Um, I, I actually was trying to get y'all's attention off me because I thought Ben's story was so good. And Ben, I believe in you. You can top my Transformers book commercial. I, I don't know. I appreciate the praise, but he, here it is. Every time I've made a mistake, one of my hairs has turned white. I think that that explains it. <laughs> No, Ben, you, I got you beat, buddy. Don't even try. <laughs> you still have dark hair, dude. But um, I think uh, now that this is kind of embarrassing, Vivian. I'm going to blame you for this. Um, I discovered a very some very dark things about myself in the middle of my career, and uh, I had to deal with them. And the mistake, character-wise, was I was really upset with the way things were going at a company I was at, and. Even though I think I knew better, I just started allowing their bad actions to justify my own bad actions. And that was really hard to recover from attitude-wise. And in retrospect, I wished I'd had a spirit of, it doesn't matter 
how bad a situation you're in. If you're not trying your best to be your best and make situations better, you're wasting your life. You're wasting your time. Uh, you're, you're hurting your teammates. Even if they're all toxic, by you not trying to make a difference, you're really hurting yourself because if you can just keep doing your best to be your best and to try to make positive changes. When you're in a toxic environment, a hellhole, think of how much better you'll be when you're out of that environment. But Vivian, that is worse than Ben's mistake. I tell you, I'd rather have made Ben's mistake than that mistake. But I'm glad to say this is the hardest lesson I've had in my life, but I did recover from it. And um, I'm glad for that. Thank you very much, Tom. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great stories, and um, I guess since we're talking about white hairs and Ben being thirty-seven, having all this gray, I've got a confession to make, people. This beard you see on me, this this is dyed. My my beard is actually quite white. It's completely white right here, but then the rest of it is like soup, like patchy and white in weird areas. Um, once it is entirely white evenly, I'm just going to stop coloring it. But until that happens, I tell you, I got it. You know, Harpreet, you're making a big mistake. From what you're describing, that would look so incredibly badass. You should just let it go, dude. I'm all about being badass, so I think I might do that. Frozen style, let it go. Yeah. Uh, so I got a question here from Wiko. Wiko um, could not join us today. He's actually closing on a house. So congrats to Wiko. Um, I'm going to pull up his question here because it's wordy as hell. I don't know why I got to make it so wordy, Wiko. Like just like, two lines would have been great. Um, but let's see what he says. Am I wrong in thinking that monitoring memory utilization would be one of the top priorities in selecting the right instance or instances to cater my workload? My experience with Selenium is that it eats up quite a bit of RAM, maybe due to using Chrome. I started working with auto scaling and elastic load balancing, but figured that since my load doesn't change drastically from day to day, that a amount of flexibility might be a little bit of overkill. So now I'm trying to focus on simply getting the right instance to fit my needs and happen across a white paper addressing this. Monitoring memory doesn't seem to be a standard CloudWatch metric, though I wanted to make sure my logic made sense before writing my own custom metric to monitor my RAM usage and use that as a measurement to scale up or down as needed. Also, I was wondering if there might be any other things to consider going down this route that you find folks might be familiar with that might shed some light on any potholes before I take this path. Uh, thanks again, homie, for everything. Hey, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, cool. I've got no clue what that question is um, even trying to ask, so I'm going to leave it up to people more smarter than me, like Ben, go for it. So the first question I'd ask him is, is this a personal personal passion project or is he doing it for his employer? So, so this, it, yeah, this was that question that he brought up the last couple of weeks when he was scraping. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, like price data from a website or something like that. Yeah. I'm going to assume it's a personal or, well, or, I, I do remember, you, I do remember him saying that this was for a client. Oh, it's for a client. Okay. Um, because scraping with Amazon instances and some of the complexities talking about setting up, that's that gets complicated. Where I've done, I've scraped at least a terabyte of data that I've downloaded before. And I did that at my personal home where you have a machine, you have fast internet, you're not nickel and dimed. 
And so that that's the question I'd ask him is, does he, and, and maybe he would say he, he just doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to have a dedicated system because if you have a dedicated system, memory's not an issue. It's so easy for you to have 128 gigs of RAM and have a gigabyte connection. Um, so I, I think I would just experiment if I was him. So I'll, I'll just wrap up. That's what I do. I'd experiment with, because his issue is he, he was crashing, right? He was having issues where the instance would crash and that yeah. means he's way too small. So just experiment, find the minimum instance you can go with where it doesn't crash. It runs for hours without going down. And then that, there you go. That's your instance. Figuring out auto scaling, some of the stuff he talked about, I'd say that's overcomplicating it. Yeah. Um, does Vin want to add anything here? Because I see you in the chat. Um, no, nothing really to add. Just those three off the top of my head, and I'm uh, I'm kind of shotgunning this. So I, I assume at some point memory, and then eventually network bandwidth, and then eventually drive I/O. Those are going to be three constraints that I can think of from scraping. Right on. Well, Waco, hopefully that uh, that helped you out. If not, we'll be back here next Friday. Uh, any other questions from anybody? Uh, wait, Austin, I see you adding something in. Do you want to add something in there? or? Oh, I was just saying that because um, he was doing this for work and he was initially, I think he was on the free plan. And so he was kind of asking, like, does he just need to scale up um, because he was kind of running into issues? And maybe he's trying to figure out, like, is that his memory? Is that the main thing he has to worry about when it comes to the scaling? And I think Ben talking about find what is the minimum instance that you need to be on to get your scraper to run? And then you have kind of a, a level um, from there and kind of experiment as Tom is saying, and just figure out what works for you to get it to fully run. Right on. Awesome. So if you guys got a, got any last questions, go ahead and put that right there into the chat. What I did print the chat right now, I'm going to post it again. This is a link to go and essentially vote for the Data Community Content Creators Award. So I'm going to tell you how this this came up, right? So I saw some random like awards being handed out on LinkedIn. And then I thought to myself, I was like, wait, hold on. You can just give awards to people? Like, like nobody gives you power. Yeah, you can just give awards to people. So I was like, shit, I want to give awards to people, but I want to treat this like, like it's, you know, the People's Choice Award. And since it's me and I got swag, I was like, all right, let's make this like the MP. TV awards as well. Uh, but I figured no one would do it if it was just me. So I reached out to Kate and I was like, dude, I got this crazy idea. Let's have an award ceremony. And she was like 100% on board with it. And it's happening April 27th. This is powered entirely by you guys. So if you guys do not go and vote, then like we're going to have like a shitty award ceremony. So please help us make this awesome. We got a bunch of categories here that I hope, um, cause I know like as a consumer of information, as somebody that's self-taught, um, these are the places that I go to for learning. And I know that um, a lot of you guys go to the same type of places for learning. So, you know, these are some of the, the categories that, um, that, that I think will have some good votes. So please help us make this happen guys. Um, yeah. I see somebody is unmuted. So go for it. Ben is unmuted or Tom. I, I just want to say um, I got out and I have, I just forgot to put on my, I voted sticker for the day, but it's a great initiative. Thanks to you and Kate for oh, doing thank that. Thank you guys. And if you guys could just help spread the word, post it on your LinkedIn uh, rather than sharing the post, just post it because that'll get more traction. If you have anybody that you follow in particular, send them a link to this thing so that they can then send it to their audience so that we can get more and more people. What I'm hoping happens from this is that we just get exposed to a bunch of people who do stuff that we haven't heard of before. So that's like my biggest like goal from this is let's hear about people that we have not ever heard of who are out there doing some amazing things. 
Um, so that's like the, the biggest hope I have. Um, so yeah, guys, vote. I'll post it again. Share it with your friends, family, data lovers, of course, only if they're data lovers. Um, let's make it happen. It's happening April 27th, live on LinkedIn, powered entirely by you. Um, I think it's going to be awesome, man. It's going to be a uh, real good, real good time. Ben had a fake social media account that was quoted by USA Today. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, I don't see any other questions in the chat. Um, so if anybody has a last minute question, now is the time to go ahead and unmute yourself and ask it. If not, we'll go ahead and wrap up. You guys don't forget that we also do this on Sunday mornings. Um, it's just as awesome, but I know it'll be more awesome if it was all of you guys there. So please do come. Uh, Austin, go for it. Yeah. So I, my question was just kind of around um, what's helped people kind of develop themselves and to the success where they find themselves in the data community. Have they, has mentors been the biggest thing? Have, has it been managers that have helped kind of uh, let you explore what you want to do and where you want to go? Uh, I'm just curious what has um, helped lead people in in this group to be where they are and where they kind of see themselves going? I think I'll start with Makiko on this one. So it's how did I wander into the data community, into the data group? Um, mm-hmm. So it's funny, everyone's talking, everyone earlier was talking about their screw-ups, right? Um, and I think my, my, my biggest screw-up at the beginning of my career is actually what got me into the data community indirectly. And, you know, my first job graduating out of college was working at a hair salon. And the day I knew my (laughs) time there was limited was when I actually uh, spilled my coffee over the entire like internet. And so all the, you know, point of system sales were down. There were hairstylists wandering around going like, I can't get to my clients. My clients are canceling on me. They're trying to make appointments, you know, and like most of my clients were tech people that time. And I was like, you know what? I'm tired of sweeping hair. I want to go into tech. You know, I want to try this new thing. Um, But it was hard because, you know, I didn't have a master's, didn't have a PhD. Like I, a pretty non-traditional candidate. Um, So I kind of had to find my own way and I had to find, and the reality is that the thing that will always push me is challenging myself and doing the things that people did not think was possible for someone like me, you know, and that's ultimately what got me into data science and machine learning was because it seemed very much so filled with like Stanford, you know, VC dudes, like going out there doing like, you know, image like projects or whatever, deep learning. Um, and I want to go in and explore and, and I come into the space, you know, uh, taught doing the boot camps. And, you know, that's still the heart of me growing in this career is the person who always wants to just kind of break the new glass ceiling, um, break the new glass barrier, but to keep learning. And so, you know, now my work, my focus is on engineering as opposed to strategy and analytics. But that's the thing that kind of keeps pushing me is people within this community being entirely unlike what I thought, you know, the community was, but also being constantly supportive of my efforts to constantly push myself. And I find resources in books or classes, you know, and, you know, in communities like ours of data science, um, but it's the people. And so, you know, I think we should all take it upon ourselves to always encourage people to, you know, do their best. Sometimes that can be loving and kind, but sometimes that can be like a boxing coach yelling at you saying, you're not, you know, I know you can do more. So I would encourage all of us to do that because it helps people like me for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to hear from, from some more people for sure. But for me, it's been all the people out there who make the videos, who do the, the GitHub work, who write the articles, who are posting content on LinkedIn. Like those are all the people that have helped me. And then I, I mean, 
not gonna lie, I started a podcast just because I needed to find more mentors and I need to find some way to talk to people and make it worth a while. So I was like, oh shit, I'll make a podcast. People will talk to me then. Um, and that's the reason I did this and it's blown in, blown up into this, which has been absolutely beautiful. Um, but I mean, everybody here has definitely been a mentor to me to some extent. Um, but what else? Who, who else? Let's hear from uh, let's hear from Vin and then Greg. Is that Vin or Ben? Vin, Vin. Okay, good. Sorry, I can. I don't know why I have a hard time hearing the difference between my name and Ben. <laughs> um, same way. Wow, how did I wander into data science and what was helpful? Um, people being really understanding of me making mistakes along the way. I mean, we talked about all the mistakes and what was our worst mistake in that. But I don't think any of us would be here if a lot of those mistakes hadn't have been accepted by somebody. I understand some of them have led to other people being terminated, but I had a lot of good mentors and I had, well, not a lot. I had two good mentors. I take that back. I haven't had a lot of good mentors. I had two good mentors and a lot of people try their best to mentor me and I'm not the easiest person to mentor. So it was a whole lot of people putting up with me. So find people that don't mind when you make mistakes. Those are really the best teams to work on. Our teams of people that talk like everyone here. I mean, you've talked, you've heard how openly all of us talk about mistakes. Find a team that doesn't just talk about when they messed up, but they have that, that culture of if there's been a mistake, we're all going to fix it. Why? Because we're probably going to be the next person to make a mistake. And so we're going to hop on and help fix because we know you're going to need to next time. And we're going to need you to keep quiet and cover it up. So, you know, find those teams that are not only mentors, but also, you know, not just supportive. Yeah. But like when things get ugly and you do the dumb things that I've done, there's, there's a team there. And they're really a team and they're really there to support you. And they're there for the weekend because, you know, I may have made some mistakes with primary keys in the past that I regret. So find that team that isn't just talk, talking to you about support, but really, really is willing to teach you when you learn and sometimes when you don't. Yeah, that psychological safety is for sure super, super important. Um, Tom, because uh, Tom is like the, just goes on the, the like father so figure mentor long. of everyone here. For sure. Well, it's just that um, in the beginning, God created dirt and then I was born. So, yeah. Um, no, for me, it was uh, in high school. My, I was an aqua jock, a swimmer, competitive swimmer. And my swim coach was like a second dad to me was my biology coach. And so I obviously made A's in that class. But um, what did I suck in physics, but it was so cool. And so, yeah, my first C I ever got in high school was in physics. So what I do, I went into mechanical engineering and I, and I loved it. It was a struggle. Uh, I actually struggled a lot with statics and dynamics and later I could just think about it like it was a second brain, but I didn't really, there wasn't really data science when I started, but I, I fell in love with predictive analytics and first physics principles. But in grad school, we were starting to see serious limits uh, to uh, traditional methods. And so expert systems, fuzzy logic, uh, neural networks came on the scene and I just latched onto that. And um, uh, after knowing Fortran and basic and stuff like that, I, I learned C on my own and was doing some pretty cool advanced neural network program back in the mid nineties, not at the level that Jan Lacoon was doing, but uh, just fell in love with it. And, um, but they're two very close cousins, the, the multi-physical system modeling and control system design, all the simulation you do with that. It's just that it's, 
first principles based and those first principles are based on uh, basically data science principles. But then um, over over the years, I started to see the shift in, wow, wouldn't it be nice if uh, I was thinking this, I'm working with all this data now that I didn't generate. And what if I could create some visualizations and some simulations? What if I could help my mechanical engineering brother over here that's got these great statistics models? <laughs> Y'all will laugh. These huge statistics models. He was trying to run in Excel. I said, no, Marcos, we're not doing any of that more. We're moving over to Python. But I started using Python 20 plus years ago, and I, I felt like I was set free after. And I, I still love C and C++ to this day and even Fortran. But boy, Python was just this brave, new, awesome world. It was like a warp drive for coding. And it, the rest was history. I think Python, the Python, when people that are new ask me, what should I focus on? Fall in love with Python and get really good at it. This is my top advice. Thank you very much, Tom. How about uh, from Curtis or Greg? Do you guys want to share here? Start with, we'll start with Curtis and we'll go to Greg. Gosh. Um, I'll say um, I'm... I'm very, very good at finding people that are ahead of me in in areas that I want to go into, um, and I'm 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 very how can I say inquisitive by nature. So I would do as much research about like someone who's where I'd want to go, and just when I'm ready, I'll ask them questions. But what also helps is just um, writing's been my biggest thing. So um, I like. I took a lot of courses in the beginning, but I found myself getting into a loop of where I was just taking course after course after course after course and not doing anything practical. Then um, when I started writing, it was almost like, all right, cool. Now I feel like I've got a little bit of responsibility because I started to realize people were actually listening to what I was saying. I was like, what the hell are you listening? <laughs> and um, yeah, I just, from there, I guess it, it was kind of like the Makiko effect where you're just thinking, all right, now I need to just break new glass ceilings and keep getting better and better. And that's literally it. Oh man, thank you, Curtis. Greg? Yeah, I I have, I guess I have multiple things that, that drive me uh, a, bit, a bit of it is a little bit cliche. So my, my parents per se, my father is an economist. My mom is a chemical and civil engineer. So I was born in family, you know, they've, if dealt with numbers, if dealt with, you know, a lot of things, they, they pushed me to, to be the best because they knew somehow they would send me to the U.S. to to evolve. So the first half, so I just closed the first 10 years of my of my career when I when I look back at it, it was based on, you know, this guy who shows up very motivated, um, here to do the job well, and kind of uh, leaned on the manager to push them upwards when that wasn't even the case. Um, did not take charge of my next level and got frustrated because of that, because it was every year revision you get maximum, but then again, it's 3%, 5% pay increase with the same job responsibility. So one thing for sure I didn't know how to do is to network because I've watched people who I felt were not necessarily as smart getting ahead. So which means I was missing something, the networking and the uh, understanding how, you know, what, what was the gap between, you know, me being stagnant and knowing what I know versus moving around, getting in touch with people who could move me, move me the right way. So the next 10 years, what I've been focusing on recently, even prior to coming with uh, joining Amazon was kind of like being very curious and start asking questions. And you do that enough, you'll find people who will take interest in you. Um, 
And that's how I was able to find mentors who believed in me because I was interested in solving issues. And that led me to create, you know, cool tools that tackled a lot of stuff. Um, some of them was even like creating a web app for uh, customers that was simulating pricing of products so they can kind of shop around and uh, build contracts with, with us. And I was a product manager then, uh, not knowing too much about data, but I forced myself to learn it, uh, did some, some, some coding, but the things that I couldn't do, I got the experts in because if we think about simulation, we're thinking about a lot of statistics in there too. And uh, being able to rally people around an idea that could really do uh, 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 some good things for the business. Now at Amazon, it's kind of like, I'm focusing on looking for people who are willing to see what I can do and help me transform uh, my trajectory for the next five, 10 years. And uh, they're really open to seeing what I'm writing right now, uh, guide me, make corrections, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, those are the folks that have really been pushing me. And the last one is, you know, with social media right now, uh, I feel like this is my main source for getting so many information that I gobble, whether it's articles, the content you guys are putting out there, and me trying to put the pieces together. And I think that's what I'm better at or best at, which is understanding industry trends and where to plug in, uh, especially in the world of data science, how to plug that in and to make a business work. So that's one thing I know for sure I wanna continue doing and continue working with you guys, the professional ones. So thank you. Right on, man. Absolutely love that. Some great responses there. Um, I see somebody else on me. Nope. Cool. Well, guys, thank you so much for, for sitting here chatting. And apparently there's a recipe out there to clone Makiko. It's 30% Netflix, 30% 90s rom-com, and 40% uh, personal self-help section. So if you guys want to clone her in her spirit, that's what you need to do i guess we need her reading and watch list now yes i was gonna say swap out 15 percent for the art of manliness podcast and uh the zen of motorcycle you know maintenance so what's the percentage that goes to the artist of data science yeah um i mean what's the referral rate right <laughs> yeah uh Listen, listen to my podcast, Mickey. What the hell? Uh, all right, guys. Well, uh, take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Happy to see you guys here. Don't forget to vote for your favorite content creator. Don't forget to help us spread the word about this. April 27th, um, you're going to see me like dressed up for the red carpet. It is going to be amazing. Um, so, guys, vote. Share with everybody you know and love. Hope to see you guys also on Sunday for the uh, Comet ML sponsored office hours. That's bit.ly, so bit.ly slash comet-ml-oh. Register, come through, hang out. Hope to see you guys there. Take care. Have a good rest of the weekend. Remember, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everybody.